Hello everyone, my name is Damon and I'm here to tell you all about the history of Russia, which is a weekly-ish podcast covering Russia through the ages, from the early days of the Kievan Rus, which is where I'm currently at, taking in the Golden Horde, the rise of Muscovy and expansion, and then moving through the Age of Empire, Revolution, the Soviet Union, and finally the Russia of today. And we'll get to meet a host of famous characters along the way, including Vladimir the Great, Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, Nicholas and Alexandra, Rasputin, Lenin, Stalin, Gorbachev, and of course the current Tsar Vladimir Putin. Plus, of course, the millions of the not-so-famous, all acting out their parts through Russian history's shifting patterns, set against a background of triumph and tragedy in a country that seems so unfeasibly massive, foreboding, distant, and yet so utterly unique and compelling. So listen to the history of Russia wherever you pick up your podcasts and revel in the history of this fascinating land. Hello, Hello everybody. everybody, and welcome to Historia Canadiana. I'm sorry, did I step on your toes? <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> I was off to such a good start. Okay. <laughs> Go on, keep going if you're Mr. Like, great at... My name is Patrick, and with me is my co-host, the most beautiful man on the earth, the greatest boy you'll ever meet, the smartest, most intelligent man, Mackenzie. Incredible. So are we going to actually keep this up for the entire episode? I'm Mackenzie and you're Patrick? Oh, God, no. <laughs> I'm not smart enough to sound like you. I don't think... Look, I'm not smart enough to sound like me. It's fine. <laughs> So yeah, obviously, welcome everyone to Historia Canadiana. Sometimes we're a bit more cohesive than others, and sometimes Mac derails the show. Yay! <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about a book and historical context, I guess, more broadly speaking, of the Jesuits in North America. And the book we're going to be covering that through is a book from the 1980s by an Irish-Canadian author called Brian Moore, and his book is named Black Robe. Now, I read the book, Mackenzie read the, uh, saw the movie adaptation. I read the movie. Yeah, you read the movie script. <laughs> you saw the movie for people who think, oh, this might be confusing. No, it's pretty much the same story. <laughs> the only reason I watched the movie is that the book is notoriously hard to find in an online yeah. fashion. And Patrick has the book. He's read it before. We didn't really want to put the stress indicator of having me to like find the book and then take the, then like maybe not having the time to read it. Yeah. So instead I watched the movie, made thorough notes on that instead. Exactly. So uh, speaking of which, the general theme that I was approaching the notes with today was within the context of conversion, right? And this idea that the Jesuits used a lot of images to try, and we'll see how successful they were or not later, to try to convert a lot of the native populations that they met. So they used actual physical images. And that kind of informed my note taking on the book of saying, how do we construct images of ourselves? How do we construct images of the other within such theological or colonial purposes? Mac took a bit of a different approach. He took more of a, a filmmaking and just representational approach. But I think there's yeah. a lot of crossover that can happen within those two types of notes, definitely. Oh, for sure. Well, because again, when I was looking at my notes, I was really more interested in how these cultures were represented and then how they use cultures interacted. 
Yeah. Which again plays back into that conversion because that was the whole point of their interaction. So the only reason the fathers and the missionaries were interacting with the First Nations people was because it was what they were there to do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, before we go too far, two things. One, some listeners might be saying, oh man, is this another flashback episode? I thought this was a chronological show. Yes, but um, there's a reason for it, right? And this is kind of a sizzle for the next episode already. So this idea of conversion practices is going to carry over into our next episode, uh, which is in two weeks time. And I thought it would be interesting to contrast the period that we're talking about here, New France, with a later period that is kind of led by the British power in Canada and their conversion practices, as we will see it through a native author who was converted to Methodism called George Copway. And we have a very special guest with us next episode that's going to talk to us about George Copway and we're going to have a discussion with him. And I thought it would be an interesting contrast to kind of open up to this idea of different types of practices going on. Also, and this is more of a shameless plug time before we get into a conventional episode, two things to mention. One, thank you very much to Craig for signing up to our $3 a month Patreon feed. Mm -hmm. um, Craig gets access to Mackenzie's extra episode a month, Pop Canada, and he gets access to early episodes and all kinds of goodies like that. So, episodes that are bigger, longer, and uncut. Absolutely. We took the South Park route with that one. So basically, it's the same episodes, but with more jokes. So enjoy more jokes, that. More tangents and more stupid, if that's what you're <laughs> interested in. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so thank you very much to Craig. And thank you very much to Elise and Sinazes, who are also signed up on our Patreon. If you want to join them, the links are in the description. Also, if you want to leave a review, um, that's something you can do, and it helps to boost the show quite a bit. So for example, I have one here that is absolutely phenomenal, and I felt that it was necessary to read it out on the show because I absolutely love this. So this is from Canadian Mama 67 on Apple Podcasts, and she writes, I assume she, the title keeps getting better and better. I have been listening since the first episode and find the subject matters very interesting and always look forward to the next episode. Good work. Thank you very much. And that apparently was worth two stars out of five, which I thought was absolutely great. Thanks, Canadian Mama 67. <laughs> you the bomb. Honestly, fantastic. Keep coming. Keep on bringing those absolutely uh, disconnected reviews. I love them. We will. I will endeavor, as always work to meet Canadian Mama 67's expectations of me. Of mediocrity? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is there anything else you wanted to mention or can we get into the episode? Let's, let's just jump right into it. All right. So the, the way the show works, generally we kind of talk about the history first and then explore how the book or form of media that we're talking about represents that. Today, uh, we are going to be doing something similar, except the historical part I don't think is going to take as long because I think there's going to be a lot of discussion um, with, throughout the episode, even when we do talk about the two forms of media that we're talking about, about what things were correct, what things were historically inaccurate, and so on and so forth. So we'll kind of develop a lot of the history as we go along. So the basic premise of Black Robe is that 
we follow a group of Jesuits, particularly Father Lafargue and his companion, Daniel. An aspiring as, Jesuit. An aspiring Jesuit, absolutely. As they travel from Quebec to what would be roughly modern day Ontario in the Great Lakes to visit the Hurons. And they're accompanied by the Algonquin tribes. Along the way, they encounter trials and tribulations, including an enemy tribe known as the Iroquois, or as we'd call them today, the Haudenosaunee. So that's the basic idea of it. Uh, the entire goal of the Jesuit uh, mission, as we mentioned, is to try to convert the Hurons that they are going to, and at the same time, try to obviously convert the Algonquins that they are with. That being said, I think it would be useful to kind of set up some historical basics as to who these various populations are before getting into the actual practices and interactions. So just starting off, do you, what's your general understanding say of here, let's start with the Algonquin people. Do you have a general idea of who they were, what they, as, what the broad cultural elements of their history were? As a deep and connection as the Canadian, or more specifically, the Quebec high school system provides. Right. You know, beyond the stuff that they force you to learn for the ministry exam, or not force, but they provide mm -hmm. for the curriculum for the ministry exam. Okay. So by and large, and again, this is a cursory glance, we'll kind of develop this as we go along. Two things that are often brought up with the Algonquin people is that, first of all, uh, the Algonquins are a part of a larger linguistic family known as Algonquian, right? And now the Algonquian language family basically covered uh, Eastern, most of Eastern Canada, not the entirety, uh, most of Eastern Canada and the Eastern United States and moved west a bit into a bit of what is modern Ontario. So that is a huge territory. And there are some cultural similarities between uh, these, uh, these native populations that broadly associated under the linguistic family of Algonquian, which included the Inu, the Cree, the Algonquins. Uh, culturally, they were similar to what we know as the Anishinaabeg peoples. So that, that's generally what we're talking about here. Inclu some of the cultural practices that are similar are the fact that a lot of them were nomadic hunting tribes. And that they had a relatively patrilineal structure. Now, again, this can vary from one group to another. There was a relatively patrilineal structure. And a lot of their legends, while there were some variations, are similar, right? And they feature similar themes. Uh, the most notable for our purposes here, and the one that's most thought of when we're imagining a lot of the Algonquin people, is one that is known as the Gichi Manitou. Now, I'm saying one version of it. Again, there are plenty of versions, uh, variations of this term. The Gichi Manitou roughly, roughly translates to the Great Spirit, right? and sometimes the Great Creator. Right? He's this kind of abstract, uh, benevolent force that doesn't directly interact with humans um, and is rarely actually personified in the myths. And actually, originally, he did the, it didn't even have a gender, right? The gender came later uh, after European contact um, when there were a lot of parallels, erroneously, as we'll see, drawn between the Gichimanitu and God. Mm -hmm. So that's roughly what we're t uh, who we're talking about when we're talking about the Algonquins, right? So nomadic with uh, patrilineal structures and legends that broadly connect to one another. Again, we'll develop it later. 
The Iroquois are a different uh, linguistic and cultural group, and much like the Algonquin peoples, uh, are actually a confederacy of many nations. And actually, confederacy was kind of the translation of what they referred to themselves as. They had their own set of laws and regulations that managed the interactions between a lot of these nations, which included the Mohawk, the Oneida, the Seneca people. Um, and a lot of the laws would actually inform such documents as the United States Constitution later on, which is something that a lot of politicians forget these days when they talk about the Native Americans. <laughs> um, That's an understatement. Yeah. The Iroquois, or again, we use Iroquois because that's what they use in the, or at least they used in the book. So they are actually the traditional enemies of the Algonquin peoples. Using the term traditional in this case is a bit fraught because that assumes that they were always at war with them. But by and large, at least when Europeans started writing down the history of these peoples, for as far back as many of the people that they encountered could remember, they were at war. And we'll get into that again later. Interestingly enough, the Iroquois were not like the Algonquin peoples in that they were much more sedentary, right? The famous longhouses and the use of agriculture, including uh, the growing of maize and uh, beans, squash, all that was uh, part of the Iroquois structure. But it's also noted, it should be noted that their agriculture and sedentary lifestyle worked a bit differently than ours because they get very in touch with the land. So they also rotated through. Mm -hmm. certain living areas so that the land would have time to refresh and rejuvenate itself. Absolutely. But even that, I was actually listening before uh, we recorded the episode, I was actually listening a bit on the Iroquois and Algonquin peoples and their relations. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting because that practice in and of itself apparently had quite the limit. And there was actually historical and archaeological evidence that at times the villages had to keep expanding and expanding in order to accommodate sometimes the lack of uh, viable agricultural land. So sometimes mm. you ended up with villages that were quite large. I think the, the largest they found was 60 or 70 acres. And it was basically, uh, the, there were thousands of people in it, right? And they constantly had to move the village borders in order to accommodate that. Oh, for uh, sure. We know, we know historical and archaeological evidence indicates that their population, their cultures and cities were much more developed and equal in size to what was going on in Europe than what's often perceived or portrayed. Oh, yeah. For example, like cities found in the Mississippi Valley, the Mississippi, along the Mississippi River, have been shown to be just as big as, say, London at, the, at around the same time. Mm -hmm. Tenochtitlan in, this, in Southern America, I think it was modern-day Mexico, is known as one of the greatest cities in history before it was uh, raised to the ground. Yep. Uh, so, yeah. Interesting difference also with the Iroquois and the Algonquin peoples is that, and this might be a result of this actual sedentarization um, that's subject to historical debate, but they were a mat more matrilineal population, or at least women played a more significant role within their populations than, say, in, within Algonquin peoples. So they, for example, were uh, very much involved in the... Uh, they were very much involved in the distribution of food. They were very much involved in the gathering of food and they created a lot of pottery. Like they were an intrinsic part of the entire social system and social network that mm -hmm. the Iroquois had created for themselves. 
One similarity, and again, this is tenuous at best, it depends how you look at it, and it depends from one nation to another, is that there's also a form of a great spirit within the Iroquois people, uh, within the myths of the Iroquois people. Their, the name is not Manitou, it's the Orenda, and it's not quite a godlike figure, despite what lazy anthropologists would later claim. Um, it's more like a life force that enables or makes use of the abilities of other cosmic beings that are part of the uh, Haudenosaunee cosmology. So it's a bit different. And again, you can very easily see why missionaries or Christian anthropologists would latch on to this idea as a form of a godlike figure. Oh, yeah. What happened constantly was um, a need for comparison because that's the easiest way for us as civilizations and societies to sort of like make sense of things as we find other things that we believe it's comparable to. Yeah. But as we discover the more and more we actually study the histories, the more and more we realize there was a lot going on in the First Nation civilizations that just wasn't comparable. Yeah, or absolutely. Not in, not in a sense that we can make an easy comparison with. No. And again, I'm making these broad generalizations, not in order to be... Uh, not in order to uh, d- to be diminutive of the various uh, cultural differences that a lot of these populations demonstrated, but because for now I, it's easier to kind of imagine these two groups, and also because it relates more directly to how the Jesuits that we're going to be talking about saw them. We are providing the background information that would have been important for the time of the creation of the book and the film, which were written relatively close to each other. This isn't a case for anybody who's interested. This isn't a case of a book being written. 50, 60, 100 years in the past, and then being adapted into a movie much later on. Mm -hmm. The book was 1985 and the movie was 1991? Yep, something like that, yeah. So yeah, exactly. And also, just because there's only so much that you can cover about a culture in like a single podcast. There's plenty of podcasts that you can listen to if you want to know a lot more about native myths and cultures. For example, there's one that's really great. It's called uh, Iroquois Tales and Legends or something along those lines. I'll link it in the description. It's not like a, uh, this is not a like a sponsorship or anything. They're just really good. And they, it's two Iroquois guys who talk about these myths themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a much more interesting way to get these uh, myths from a as close to firsthand account of this tradition as you can get today. So is there anything else that you wanted to add about the natives before we kind of cover the broad strokes of the Jesuits for now? No, I think for our purposes, that covers what, that covers what I think what we would want to say. Okay, great. And again, we'll get back to some more. Mm -hmm. So the Jesuits themselves uh, have a much shorter history than the Iroquois or the Algonquins who have been in Canada or what we now know as Canada for thousands of years. So the Jesuits themselves were formed in the 1540s, in 1540 actually, as a kind of offshoot and branch of Catholicism. They were formed under the doctrine of Ignatius de de Loyola, who obviously named the famous uh, Loyola campus here in Montreal of Concordia University. And the entire philosophical doctrine of the Jesuits is to actually meditate on the world around you and create your own images and use your imagination uh, to inform your faith. Right. It's a it's a branch of Catholicism that kind of 
has become a bit more, I think, normalized these days, but at the time was radically different, right? Because it requires a lot more interpretation than what a lot of Catholic or even Protestant branches would allow for at the time. Mm -hmm. And that caused a significant amount of distress to a lot of uh, religious orders at the time. The Jesuits got in hot water with a lot of people. So the Jesuits themselves actually rose to prominence Later than their creation, they didn't immediately hit it big, namely for the reasons I just mentioned. They rose to prominence in the 17th century with the kind of solidifying of the age of empire. Because a huge part of the Jesuit mission was to not only gather, but to spread knowledge, right? obviously of God, but also just of the world around you as they saw it through God. And so with the expansion of Spanish and French Catholic empires, the Jesuits also went along with them in order to spread this idea, these ideas that they had, and in order to document a lot of the ideas that were being discovered, uh, or at least discovered from a European perspective. Is this essentially allowed, and this brings up a whole series of problems as well as to who dictates what knowledge is acceptable or not, but this essentially allowed a lot of the Jesuits to essentially become early anthropologists and early linguists, right? Because a lot of their writings, which you can find compiled today online for free um, in the Jesuit relations, were often about what they saw and who they encountered. They actually wrote some of the first, uh, what we now consider a dictionary of native languages. Now, again, these things have a lot of problems to them, and there was this kind of selection of knowledge. But the idea remains that a lot of what we know today of that time and of these native populations that they encountered is directly influenced and informed by the work that Jesuit missionaries did, which was if uh, selective, was a bit more sometimes in depth than maybe some of the, or at least a different perspective than what the uh, native oral traditions would provide. So some of the more uh, famous Jesuits in New France are, or at least here in Quebec, are Jean de Brébeuf and Gabriel Lalma. And these are important names because they, their stories directly influenced the writing of Black Robe. Um, Jean Brébeuf and Gabriel Lalma were two uh, missionaries who went to Hur- Huronia, much like uh, Father Laforgue is trying to do in Black Robe. And they became famous because they were basically made into martyrs. They were killed along the way, and their absolutely horrifying demise kind of inspired a lot of martyr myths in Canada, especially from a Jesuit perspective. Because apparently, and again, this is, uh, we're basing ourselves just off of right, secondhand writings of this, um, apparently they held on to their faith while they were dying, right? So it kind of became a mythologized death. Um, and we can get into the, the idea of martyrdom later if you want, but uh, that's definitely like the two most important, or at least two most famous Jesuits. Interestingly enough, once the British conquered North America, the Jesuits would actually be banned, and they only started returning in very small numbers in the 1840s, returning to Canada, by the way, the, mm-hmm. in the 1840s. Their exploration and empire would have been a good way for them to, because were they funded by the church or were they their own separate entity? They were funded in part by a church missionary, a church, uh, the church back in France, mm-hmm. and the, as kind of an extension of the overall 
colonial project uh, that was happening. Right, because again, you know, it's the, the classic reasons of exploration of the three Gs. God is one of them. And of course, having any sort of religious backing is always a good way to bolster your reputation or solidify your, what's the word? Power. Your professionalism, I guess. Sure, yep. To say like what you are doing is good and right. So it was a perfect, it was a win-win situation for both. Absolutely. To have these Jesuit missions tag along with the expeditions. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It was a win for everybody, but the First Nations people. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So one of the things that I think all of these overviews can kind of open up to is how they perceive the other, right? How they perceive, so as you just mentioned, the Jesuits perceived the natives as a people to be converted, right? And the natives perceived the uh, Europeans, if initially as an exchange, then later as a conqueror or very quickly as a conqueror. But so there's that. And there's also just the relation of each people to a higher power, right? What does it mean for them to be on this planet or, or on this plane of existence as it was sometimes conceived? And I think this kind of imaging of the other in many ways is going to kind of carry us through this whole discussion. I think we can go into the novel and the book itself. So had you ever heard of Brian Moore before I sent you the, the, the books and the, the book notes and the movie? I don't think so. No, I, I, there's too many famous Moors is the problem. <laughs> you know, it's, there's, there's the Alan Moore. There's oh, what's the documentary, Roger Moore. Oh yeah. Roger Moore. Julianne Moore. I feel like I have heard of Brian Moore at some point or another. I just can't remember for what. Right. Because he used to be quite a famous author. I feel like today he doesn't get that much. uh, Like people don't really know him as much, or at least not in the circles I run in. Mm -hmm. Um, But he used to be quite well known uh, in Canada and in the US. So Brian Moore was a Northern Irish author who came to Canada after World War II. I think he came in exactly in 1948, if I remember correctly. And he wrote his first novels here in Canada before moving to the U.S. in 1959. So he had like a solid 10 or 11 years of a writing career in Canada. And a lot of these early ones, interestingly enough, he kind of disowns, (laughs) as all good (laughs) artists are wont to do. They disown their early supposedly crappy work. Uh, A lot of these early novels were very much like what we'd call the airport type novels, right? They're pulp thrillers and really trashy romances. They were published under a pseudonym, some of them, and they were published by famous, again, you don't see my air quotes, but quote unquote, trashy novel publisher Harlequin, which is a (laughs) famous uh, publisher here in Canada for that kind of novel. And you can see an example of this. If you want to see a great example, you can look up the cover of Wreath for a Redhead, which is oh which God. just from the cover, you can tell exactly what kind of novel it was. Even in the 50s, the, there was a kind of cover that you saw and you're like, yep, that's, that's I mean, exactly. Even hearing the name, I can be like, excuse me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll try to go off of like memory. It was basically a scantily dressed redhead who's looking on horrifyingly as a, a pair of men's hands are kind of going at her with a uh, 
basically like what would be a tie wrap or something like that in order to kill her. And, and the, the whole, the, the subtitle is like murder in Montreal or Montreal means murder or something like that. Just kind of really over the top and sensationalized novel, <laughs> which I find great. Uh, not the actual like weird implied misogyny, but the, <laughs> that kind of novel I think is really fun to look at sometimes, especially within a, a historical context. Uh, in 1955, so just before moving to the U.S., he would publish what he called his quote-unquote first novel, which was called Judith Hearn. And that was also made into a movie in 1987. And it was one of the many more novels to be turned into a movie. He wrote, for example, uh, Intent to Kill, which was also turned. The Luck of Ginger Coffee, which is his other really well-known novel, um, was directed actually by famous movie director Irvin Kirshner, who directed Star Wars Episode Five. Ah, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. Right? You'd never expect that. I, I, I honestly didn't expect that. Like, oh, of all the directors, <laughs> like one of the best-known action directors of all time, wrote this really low-key uh, or directed this really low-key movie about an Irishman coming to Montreal. <laughs> it's like okay cool apparently he wasn't really down to direct star wars episode five though at first i can imagine that thank god he did though honestly so i just looked up the cover for wreath for a redhead my yeah. good lord it's so great isn't it Oof. i mean great's great, a word yeah great so uh, I'll, I'll put it i'll put a link in the description if people want to see it like more accessibly but you can look it up yourself if not it's great it's it's great for its historical context so Today's novel, Black Robe, was also adapted. So as Mackenzie said, in 1985, he wrote this book. So he'd already come to the US by then. And in 1991, it was made into a movie also written by Brian Moore, which is one of the reasons why we have no difficulty just talking about both versions today. He kind of knows his own story, obviously, and he kept a mm -hmm. lot of the same elements that he thought was necessary. Um, now we'll get into some of the distinctions and what that means uh, between the book and the movie. But for now, it's, a, it's all you need to know is that he wrote both. He also wrote original screenplays. He adapted Simone de Beauvoir's Le Saint des Autres, which was translated into The Blood of Others. And apparently it's real bad. <laughs> so I was like, okay, great. So you basically stick with your own stuff. That's great. Just, yeah, just stay, just stay in your lane, pal. Apparently he also wrote a Hitchcock script. Uh, script. A Hitchcock? Hitchcock script, yeah. Uh, so Alfred Hitchcock, mm -hmm. uh, famous for The Birds and nothing else. <laughs> Obviously not true, but... <laughs> That's the, only dun, dun, dun. <laughs> That's the only movie that came to mind at first. But yeah, obviously Psycho. I've never heard of this Hitchcock movie, uh, Torn Curtain. Okay. It's not one of, I think, his most famous ones. Mm -hmm. But anyway, Brian Moore wrote that one sometime in the 60s. Good for him. <laughs> That's basically Brian Moore's history in a nutshell. He would die, I think, in 1999. And yeah, as we were saying, since then, I think he's kind of He's kind of fallen to obscurity, I think. Yeah, like popular in his time, but not so much as it is now. Right. I know, for example, like the copy of the book we're talking about that I have was republished as part of the new Canadian library. So yeah. this is like a, it was kind of like a, uh, an imprint that was made to kind of make a lot of so-called classic Canadian uh, books accessible to all for relatively cheap, right? And, you know, this book was published this version was published in 2011 so not that long ago um and yeah i don't think outside of black robe or 
the luck of ginger coffee i don't think people would know him generally um and i don't know how well this version of the book sold um i think there's a reason also why the new canadian library imprint kind of went away um but uh that's another discussion for another time we digress (laughs) so i guess kind of just diving into it what are your opening thoughts on Black Robe as a story, right? We're just going to get right into it. So the story of a Jesuit missionary going from Quebec City to the Great Lakes with the Algonquins meeting the Iroquois and going up to the Hurons. Uh, what are your thoughts on this story? Opening it's, salvo. It's hard, it's hard to put into this exact words, just opening thoughts. It's mm-hmm. a very, there's a lot of complicated pieces for its time, I believe, I don't know the novel, but for the time, I believe the movie was trying to have a leveled representation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it definitely stumbles and falls at certain points at certain either bits, lines, presentations, character interactions. I did a bit of, I did a bit of research, obviously, into what kind of controversy and critiques this film generated. Yeah. So the first big one I saw was actually in the languages. They have the different tribes speaking the wrong languages which again i thought that was fascinating when we saw that because you're like you had one job seriously how hard was it to find someone who spoke algonquin and not cree right because that's the language that they're speaking right they're speaking cree rather than the actually accurate algonquin right well it's also just a letdown because we're in a situation where it really those languages really are dying right that would have been the perfect opportunity to try and reinvigorate them or try and share them with the rest of the world just a little bit more Mm -hmm. so that was i guarantee you that in 1991 no one had that thought yeah i know i know anyway so that was the first inact major inaccuracy the other one i saw which was kind of interesting revolved around how first nations tribes would do conflict between each other okay so so to explain what's going on in the movie there's a couple different scenes where we see that the 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 Algonquins that are traveling with the Jesuits make contact a couple different times with a couple different tribes mm-hmm. including a I believe it's a Mohawk tribe or yeah what? Uh, they don't really mention it in the book and I forget for the movie but yes I think so yeah a tribe that we call Mohawk that is not their actual tribal name again yeah. that's just what we've given them yeah Anyway, so they take them in and then they start, they proceed to put them through a gauntlet and then executions and torture follow, right? Yes, yeah. That's most likely not what would really happen, at least between the First Nations tribes themselves. Okay. Historians have stepped forward and said that a lot of times these Iroquois tribes, to replenish their own lost warriors or people, would take in members of other tribes. So I won't debate that they might have tried to do something to say, the Jesuit missionaries, but even then, I find that a little suspect. I'll explain that later. Right. But I do know it does seem like their portrayal of how these First Nation tribes interact with each other is off. Absolutely. So I think those are two very interesting points uh, to start off with, and we can deconstruct both of them as much through the book as through the movie. So uh, if we start with language, right? So you mentioned in the movie, they don't really, they, they try, or at least they have actors, uh, native actors, which is already a lot more than, uh, the, which is great yeah. that they didn't have white actors do it. Uh, so God. they actually had native actors, if from the wrong tribe, speaking the language. Yeah. In the book, this kind of thing doesn't really transpire because the book 
is written entirely in English. So as much as the Jesuits are French, they don't speak French. And the native populations from whatever tribe they're from, uh, they don't speak their language. Again, it's translated into English. Mm-hmm. However, something that's really interesting to bring up is the way they speak. Not what they speak, but how. Uh, that I want to bring up. And I'm really happy that you brought up the question of language first, because one of the first instances of meeting native uh, populations in the book is through nonverbal communication, which I think is really interesting, where there's a Jesuit father who's speaking to Samuel de Champlain, who briefly appears uh, in the book and in the movie. He Mm -hmm. briefly appears at the beginning. And the native populations or the native representatives that are with them eventually get tired of all the talking and start playing and banging on the floor with uh, bowls and dice or uh, rocks, basically, that act as a kind of game. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really interesting way to open the book as a kind of demonstration of the use of verbal and nonverbal language that permeates a lot of if not necessarily the entire historical accuracy, but the images that we create of uh, native and European people, like one of them using a lot of uh, being very much into writing treaties and writing uh, all these texts and communicating uh, these long uh, ideas, whereas one of them is a bit more reserved and a bit more interested in speaking only when it's necessary. Well, I, th- I, th- also, I also took some notes just on sort of the relations and imagery and portrayal, because there's uh, one of the scenes when they are both getting ready to meet with each other, right? Yeah. And so the, you have Samuel de Champlain opens up and he sort of represents the colonizers and settlers and they're about to meet with the First Nations to negotiate yeah. for this sort of um, guide, guidance, mm-hmm. I guess, for the Jesuits up yep. to the Huron. And you have two very separate scenes going on because in the First Nations tribe, there's a lot more noise and ceremony, not noise, but a lot more sound, a lot more ceremony going on as they're sort of putting this performance to get ready. Meanwhile, the Samuel de Champlain is very somber. It's very quiet, sort of reflecting the culture. But then the movie does a weird thing where it tries to mirror the two because outside the Canadian settlers, the French settlers, sorry, are all playing instruments and having a bit of a party, mm-hmm. trying to force upon this mirror image of, oh, we're not so different. Yeah, and absolutely. That couldn't be further from the truth, though, because they were two very different intents behind the celebrations and music. The music part of the First Nations might have been part of getting ready for the ceremony and for the negotiations. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. the French settlers were just celebrating to celebrate surviving another day in the harsh wilderness. Yes, absolutely. And so there's this common problem throughout where the movie tries to assert this idea that we are not so different without also then going to say, well, we do have some differences and that's what makes us culturally unique. Mm -hmm. I think part of that... And we, uh, I, I was waiting to mention this. I think part of that, uh, and this can relate back somewhat to the language, right? Um, as much verbal as nonverbal, right? Is what sources Brian Moore was pulling from, right? Because we talked about this a bit before starting recording. Uh, Brian Moore uses essentially the Jesuit relations. So the own Jesuit accounts of their contact with these native populations, mm-hmm. which is very interesting because again, in the book, he kind of makes this duality between the two. So he's clearly aware that there is a kind of uh, 
there is a kind of bias that's at play in the Jesuit relations. <laughs> um, and he's trying to compensate for that uh, somewhat by showing the native perspective. But right, I think the way it translates in the movie, because that scene that you're talking about where they kind of parallel the two doesn't show up in the book. Um, right. I think definitely... that's the way it translates in the movie in that they're trying to show that there are two sides to this coin, but it's intrinsically tied to the European perspective, which was trying to assimilate a lot of these natives yeah, it's, into it's... this idea of we're not that too, uh, we're not that dissimilar. See, you also have a great spirit, God. Right. And again, it's one of those things, I will say the film does a wonderful job of portraying the, because the main character is the father, Le Gros, Le Gros, Le, oh, sorry? La Forge. La Forge. Forge, basically. Father, La Père La Forge. So <laughs> it has a really good job of portraying him as this arrogant superior figure, which yeah. I do actually really appreciate. It's a very real situation. Mm-hmm. So both to the, both in the acting and the screenplay, that is actually very well done. Yeah. But it, I did find it, because there's one line, the day they're about to leave or the day before they're about to leave, one of the settlers is there and he says, oh, are we colonizing them or are they colonizing us? Yep, which is also in the book. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, you're, you're colonizing them. You, you, you genocided them, actually, to be specific about it. Yeah, absolutely. And we can get back to that. But a lot of those fears of who's the colonizer and who's the, to use the terms of the book and the, to use the terms of the empire at the time, who's the savage here, uh, a lot of these ideas come back a lot. And I think that's Brian Moore's way of opening up to this idea. Right. Um, and I think he's trying, I, I do genuinely think he's coming at it from a perspective of trying to be balanced, but there are some, uh, there are some parts that it kind of falters. I agree. Absolutely. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to mention with language before we stray too far from that, uh, from that topic is, so there was the verbal and nonverbal and the idea of imaging the other and imagining the other. Interestingly, and I don't remember if they do that in the subtitles of when the natives uh, speak in the movie, in the book, the French speak a conventional English or, and we're led to presume a conventional French. The natives swear a lot. Right. Um, their language and the tone that they're depicted as using is much more antagonistic and it's much more uh, rough, right? And this applies as much for the Algonquins as for the Iroquois. Um, so it's very interesting, right? It, it kind of demonstrates through the use of, uh, speech, how, uh, people are seen, right? Especially through their use of language. And this is something that you saw a lot of, not just with the French, but with any European powers like, oh, their use of language is not as developed. I think that's a visual cue or at least a, a reading cue in the book of that kind of message, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was an interesting touch. If somewhat misplaced. Yeah, I, I thought that was really an interesting way of going about it. Yeah, interesting, mistu- interesting touch, but misplaced is a common sort of staple you can apply to a lot of both the book and the movie. Because mm-hmm. there is a lot of quiet moments where the father is reflective and there's sort of, you can see real discussion going on between the two groups. Mm-hmm. But then certain scenes of it just throw it all off track you know we talked a bit before there's a scene very early on in the movie when they've just begun their journey it's the first night and they're staying in the they are wigwam tents yes 
And so they're all huddled to keep the warmth in. And of course, you know, it's a quiet scene, but then fart sounds play. Yeah. It's there and like you see the father's quietly reflecting. It's very nice. The music is somber. And then yeah. it's like, is this necessary? Yeah. I know you said in the book that it is meant to represent the claustrophobia in the confined space. That's how I read it. But the sound design in the movie is very much like trying to play it for some comedic effect. Mm-hmm. Or, for example, in another scene on another night going on at the same time while everybody's asleep, there's two First Nations people that are having sex. And the father is watching. First of all, well, we'll come to that happy little chestnut later. Mm-hmm. But this representation, again, it's something that the movie, the movie tries to distinguish itself by saying they aren't savages. So, you know, it's trying to portray this people, these as real people that are noble, individualistic with a unique culture. But you're also portraying them with this dirty light of fart sound effects and just mm-hmm. fucking in the middle of a tent with a bunch of people around. Yes. And that scene is actually another major criticism that has been leveled at the movie. That scene in particular gets a lot of people scratching their heads and going, that's really weird. Yeah. So we, we've covered like a lot of various points. Before we go too further, I think we can deconstruct a lot of them. I, I want to come back to what you were saying about the Iroquois and their, uh, their use of prisoners. Right. I want to come back to this idea of sexualization and I want to touch on conversion practices. So I think like that's like three ways in which we can go about this. I think by and large, what we're trying to say in a lot of this is that the surface level ideas are there, but yeah. once you dig deeper, it kind of falters in many ways. I think that's kind of, if, if you're going into it with a historical, like with a historically minded idea, that's where it'll falter, right? Yeah, and then- To me, this black robe, uh, and then I'll let you, sorry. Uh, to me, black robe is an interesting adaptation of the Jesuit relations in that sense. And that it covers what you see in kind of an empirical look on um, these the clash of cultures, but it doesn't actually understand or wants to, for various reasons, uh, understand the intricacies of a lot of these cultural practices. And I think it's even still, it's still that idea of overall good intention, but just paved with lots of, what's the word, just details. Mm-hmm is actually very relevant today okay because it's 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 the it's the idea of our own where racism the the more modern form of racism that is less overt and more just the thousand small things that we do on a day-to-day basis yeah as like the catchphrase today systemic yeah um, the microtransgressions that we do yeah I think this movie is actually a great representation of that. How microtransgressions can actually sort of affect a representation. Because there's a lot of overall big ideas that this movie and the book produce that are really kind of interesting and really sort of good representation. Again, the fact that they use full First Nations cast at all, huge, big deal. But those little microaggressions, I think, hold it back in a lot of ways and ruin its credibility. Yeah. And, and again, like, on the surface, it looks cool for someone who wouldn't necessarily be aware of it, uh, right? If if some of us, if if we weren't necessarily doing the show, for example, and we're just watching the movie on face value, yeah, there's some fart jokes, but all right, it doesn't look like it's going out of its way to be insulting, right? Um, you know, and for example, they do get things right in the book and in the movie, in that yeah, the use of wigwams by Algonquin people was an actual thing because it was a solid home 
in which that 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 could, that they could build and deconstruct very quickly, right? As they oh, yeah. were moving along various places. Um, but there's more to it than that, right? Um, but anyway. Uh, yeah, and again, it's again like overall great intentions in the film. There's a wonderful little scene where there's a group of First Nations children. And they're throwing around the father's hat, his big rimmed hat, right? And they're sort of using it to play a little game, and he's watching on. And the whole time I was sitting there thinking to myself, he's going he's gonna to rip it out of their hands or something, you know? Mm-hmm. But he doesn't. He lets them play. It was really sort of like an interesting scene. He's just sort of smiling. And it's a very nice little interaction, sort of giving depth to all the characters involved. And also just in the details of the fact that the different tribes, their interactions, the fact at the end, one of the chief supporting characters is the Algonquin sort of, I guess, tribe leader. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he succumbs to wounds and he dies. Yeah. And in the end, he doesn't get converted, which is a very powerful scene. And they actually give fair representation to the fact that he is somebody who relies on dreams and sort of prophetic dreams and sort of messages. And it seems like they're getting those details well done. Yes. I don't know about the actual accuracy in that, but it seems to be the case. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how about we go like point by point through a lot of these ideas that we talked about because I think there's a lot to unpack here. Um, so first of all, I really enjoyed that you mentioned the Haudenosaunee representation. So you talked about initially that through your own research, they were somewhat misrepresented. The, in the book, as much as in the movie, they're represented very much kind of in the enemy role, right? Because it's a story that Moore is writing within like a Western idea that you need to have an antagonist in your book. Mm-hmm. And in the Jesuit relations that he's pulling from, there is a ready-made story of this. And it's the story of Jean Brebeuf that I mentioned earlier, who in, in a actual travel and missionary travel to the Hurons was captured by the Iroquois, was tortured and was cannibalized. Um, now, again, this is a contentious story, but that's mm-hmm. the one that's kind of promoted and the one that was yeah. at least adopted oh. by, the, um, by the Jesuits. And it's one that there is a historical precedent for, but as you were mentioning, it's not quite in the way, it's not quite as frequent as the book would have us believe. Because the book doesn't actually say, oh, this is a one-time thing or it's something that doesn't happen. It's just like, oh, of course, the Iroquois are cannibals. Like, yeah, that's, that's just it. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and, and people take it as like for granted that that's a cultural practice. It's a case of, again, to... I've done a little bit of like very little studying on travel literature, but what you see is a lot of these accounts, again, to go back to the most famous account of travel literature ever, probably the diaries of John Smith. Mm-hmm. We find that he was in a situation where he thought a lot of the same, where he was being attacked, etc. That wasn't the case. No, no, it was all lies. Well, like, like 90% of it was lies. Mm-hmm. So I, I always take any sort of those sort of horror stories that you see with a grain of salt either in what Brebeuf might have done to provoke action against him or any other sort of situation. Yeah. 
And so, and so for those of you who don't know, I, me and Patrick are very good friends outside of this. And we often do talk about movies that we're watching or whatever. So whenever I watch a new movie, I often send along running commentary as I go. <laughs> yeah. This movie was no exception. I remember watching it and watching it. And then I thought like, oh, this is interesting up to now. There's a good relationship and dynamic going on. There's not really like a villain. At one point, there's a shaman who convinces the Algonquins to, embar- to abandon the father and Daniel just because there's the belief that they're demons and he's not really a villain just because mm-hmm. like it's a bit of a fair belief. And so it's all just sort of this interesting back and forth. And then the part of the Mohawk tribe hits because there has to be a villain in the Western stories. Yeah. And that for me, that was the moment I was watching. I was like, okay, Patrick, this movie's falling apart now. Yeah. It, it comes really out of nowhere in the book too, I have to say. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Again, this comes back. I, I, the more I'm thinking about this, the more I believe this. This book is an adaptation of the Jesuit relations. And they read very much in the same way, where one thing randomly happens after another, right? There's a kind of general through line of missionary work, but by and large, just things just happen. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is in the book also. There's like a, a little person that's yeah. also, yeah. Um, that's the shaman name? in the movie. Yeah, the shaman figure. Uh, Mestigoit is his name, I think. I believe so. Or that's that, that might be the name. Okay, no, never mind. The, the, the name of the sort of uh, tribe I believe he's with is um, Montagne. Yes, Les Montagnes. Yeah. Montagne, yeah. And then, yeah, okay. I'm looking at the cast now and it's Mr. Goy. You, you do get this, uh, this spiritual idea, like you were saying, uh, that's true to an extent. But again, they kind of exaggerated a bit and he kind of comes out of nowhere in the narrative. <laughs> to <me. laughs> he, he's, he's there, I think, to reinforce um, the theme of the book in that who's the demon, who's the, who's the angel, what role is there of salvation, right? And what's, and this is uh, something interesting, which we'll come back to when we talk about conversion practices, what is a demon, right? Um, which I think is very interesting to think about because Mystigoy calls the black robes demons, him and and other natives, but they don't mean it in the same way as like someone from hell as um, the the, the Jesuits would mean it, (laughs) which I think is a really interesting use of translation. Yeah. It's an interesting thing where they constantly being compared to this demonic figure probably doesn't help that they're dressed in all black Mm -hmm. and they, they, they don't dress in anything else ever. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And also that wherever they come, death Death falls. falls. (laughs) Like they are literally just looking like arbingers of death. I can't blame anybody for calling them a demon. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's also because there's an interesting thing we're in a moment because one of the other major subplots is a relationship between the Jesuit that accompanies the father named Daniel and then the daughter of, I believe it's the chief. Yes. And her name is Anuka. Mm Mm-hmm. And they have a romantic relationship and they have a lot of, they have an interesting conversation where she says, where the sort of, um, if I'm trying to remember and try and generalize the conversation, the belief is that he's a demon because he keeps denying himself the pleasures of life. Yes, that's exactly it. Which I think is a very, very fascinating cultural connection and dissonance to have. Mm -hmm. Well, this kind of segues very nicely into the sexualization aspect that you brought up earlier in that what you see in a lot of narratives of exploration um, and just of imperial narratives long after the actual like exploration of a lot of these places was done or most of it was is the other with a capital o like just whoever the the them and the us versus them mentality is extremely sexualized 
Right. And you can see this not just with the French, but with almost any colonial project throughout time. Um, not just uh, Europeans, but you saw the, as we are referring to today, but like you saw it with Romans, you saw it with Chinese, you saw it with Japanese, you saw it with all kinds of uh, imperial narratives. Uh, and it was an interesting way, if we talk about it here, to contrast the morals of the Iroquois or Algonquin peoples and the Jesuits, right? What do you, uh, what do, you do on this earth, right, in order to versus what do you do uh, later on, right? In the afterlife, right? And what value is there in what you do on this earth versus what you do on this afterlife? What's the relation between the two? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that relationship that you're bringing up is exactly that. So you see this sexualization of native women all the time um, in a lot of these narratives. And it was simultaneously a form of exoticism, a form of control, a form of uh, conquest, and exactly that, right? This idea that, well, see, we're saving our souls um, and we're helping ourselves go to the afterlife, but they, but they are not, right? And that's why we need to baptize them before they, uh, before they die, because mm-hmm. the natives don't see it that way. They see the afterlife in a bit more of a negative way, or at least as it's represented in the book, they see it more as a dark and cold place. Um, so it's much more the reverse, whereas you, you take advantage of what time you have on this earth before you go into the afterlife. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an interesting dichotomy that I think is represented in the book. And I also think it's just that also led to one of my favorite conversations in the movie when the father's there and he's always trying to convert them. He's always telling them, oh, if you join the grace of God, et cetera, yep. et cetera. But then they start asking him questions. They're all sitting down. They're all smoking tobacco at the time. And then they go, if we were with your God, would we have tobacco? And he goes, no, you wouldn't need tobacco. You would need for nothing. Would we have women? It's like, no, you would be happy in the glory of God. And they're like, what's so great about all this? We don't have any of the stuff that we have right now that we're enjoying and et cetera. And it's a a really interesting conversation that you you don't usually get. There's also, and this comes back, this relates both to what you were just saying, and it relates back to the acting or, or the actions of Father, Father Lafargue when he was, when you mentioned, for example, that he kind of feels conflicted at times, or he's sometimes stoic or sometimes very uh, willing to convert. But as a person, he also falters, right? Uh, so that wasn't evident in the movie because uh, they don't take it as far, but in the, in both the movie and the book, he watches Daniel and Anuka have sex, right? He watches from the bushes. In the book, they take it one step further in which he masturbates while doing it. Um, so yeah, it's really, it's really quite gratuitous, but it, I think it brings home this point of um, where, what significance is there in a lot of these moral codes, right? Does it change does it really change the fact of your faith? Right? Does it really change the ideas that you're trying to promote in this case? Um, so despite his faltering, despite his constant failures as a priest, which come up many times in the book, he still tries to, um, he still tries to convince others that his version of the afterlife or his image of the afterlife is the right one and the right path to follow. Um, and that his actions on earth are selected say right (laughs) they're selectively chosen by him right and that the power of god is something that's more based off of your own personal selections at that point well i also think there's a very interesting 
parallel and mirroring going on again between the chief and the father mm-hmm. in that how they both end up being portrayed with the dignity and all that sort of other stuff. Because again, the Algonquins choose to abandon the father because of the belief that he is a demon. But then the chief eventually says, no, we made a deal. We made a promise, etc. We need to go back. We need to help him. And so there's both of them having these very honorable outlooks and dispositions and just sort of, and again, when they're in the Mohawk encampment and they're both facing death, the father, Laforge, I don't know, he has that small dignity moment and says, we will, we will be with the grace of God. Yeah. And then later, there's another scene later on that also has the, I'm going to go, what's his name? The chief's name. Oh, um, yes. Chomina? Chomina is there and he says, he talks about how we, they can't scream when they die due to reasons of keeping honor, nobility, et cetera, et cetera. So while it was a really, I think it was a bad idea to have the Mohawks as the villains, it does lead to that nice little parallel moment between the two of them, which later pays off when the father goes to talk with Chomina as he's dying and try to convert him one last time to save him before he goes to heaven. But again, Chomina says, no, I'm going to die and be with the great spirit of my people. And he accepts that. LaForge accepts that end result. Yes. So there's a very, again, again, there's a lot of interesting relationships and interactions at play throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And I actually think the presentation is really good about presenting the Jesuit father as this arrogant little asshat. There's a really put fast... Put it lightly. Yes. Put it lightly. There's a really nice scene, actually, when they're canoeing along and he's sitting over the side of a canoe affected by dysentery shitting. Yep. And everybody's just laughing at him. <laughs> I loved that so much. They have that in the book too. I was laughing so hard with that. That's such a nice touch. Mm-hmm. It is like such a little, I saw that moment. I was like, okay. And it's great because this moment comes right after the fart joke section. Mm-hmm. But it's so, so it's much a- more uh, impactful, I think. It, it, it serves the story, I think, much better. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you wanted to add or, or did you want to... Do you mind if we move into the conversion method, so to speak, right? Because I think, I think a lot of what we've been talking about here and there intrinsically relates to that. Okay. I don't know. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add or can we talk about that? I, did, I don't know. There's just a, that movie left so many thoughts going throughout my head. Right. Uh, and again, like, I just want to mention it because this is like the central focus of the book, right? And we've already been talking for like 70 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to at least address it. And based off of what we talk about, I'll, we'll, we'll kind of like branch out to a lot, of, um, a lot of these other ideas that you might have. So the basic idea and the original thought and drive behind this episode was the fact that in New France, a lot of priests and Jesuits and Ricole missionaries were actually using images like actual drawings in order to help convert natives. Now, there was a lot, there were many reasons for this, namely the lack of a common understanding at times, right? Yes, some people did speak uh, Algonquin or Huron or uh, various native languages, but in the, in the lack of the latter, they, they used images, right? And they often used Sorry, they often used images of the Virgin Mary, of a variety of saints, and most importantly, I think, uh, eschatological images, which is to say images that relate to death as it's seen within religious contexts, right? death and the afterlife. So 
in case it was not necessarily evident throughout this episode, we've been talking about images, right? The creation of what we see the other as or how we perceive the afterlife and things like that. Mm. We've been alluding to it, if not directly mentioning it. And I think that's one of the reasons why is because this is something that was prevalent historically within the contact between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just something that's going to come up in a location where death is so common. That's another one of the things the film is constantly touching upon. Mm-hmm. Winter is coming. Yes. And if they don't set up certain rules or set up certain things, they are going to die. It is likely that the whole colony is going to perish. That earlier line that I had trouble with where these two colonials are asking each other, oh, who's colonizing who? It's the father who responds. It doesn't matter. They might kill us in a couple of days. The winter might kill us. So stop thinking about that kind of stuff. Exactly. It, it mattered in the individual, but in the grand scheme of thing, it really didn't, right? Um, or it mattered for certain individuals, rather. Um, but I, I, I guess I have a question for you, right? Is that I think the use of images is a powerful one, right? Mm. I, how do you think this would change the, the Native American view of the world, right? So this is a view of the world that's very much based on um, living in the present moment or living on earth as you see fit. And the afterlife, as we mentioned, is a bit more nebulous, right? Right. Um, whereas it's kind of the other way around with the Jesuits, at least as they're represented. Do you think that the use of images themselves would have changed a lot of that perspective? Do you think it would have uh, been a useful tool to change the worldview of the afterlife? Or do you think by and large, they would have seen it or it would have been a tool that's similar in terms of text and that it's an idea that's transmitted uh, and barely more. Oh, are you saying that could, should the Jesuits have used the imagery to try and convince the First Nations to convert? No, I'm not saying should they have. I don't think anyone should have <laughs> done okay. that. Uh, I, I'm just wondering, like, how do you think images would have changed perceptions of the afterlife, right? Like, how do you think images how efficient do you think images are or how i think they're very efficient i think you know we before we learned how to write stuff down we figured stuff out with pictures and painting right before we learned how to write we had hieroglyphics so Mm -hmm. this is important stuff do you you think it would have changed the worldview itself right giving an image to the afterlife do you think it would have been a potent tool i think it's one of those situations where we don't want to talk about it because of uncomfortable, how uncomfortable it makes us feel. Yes. Any sort of talk about dread, the afterlife, heaven or hell, it solidifies the reality, mm-hmm. which is why even for say something like heaven, part of it, why it doesn't get reputation is because the idea is we can't conceive it. But the other part is you would solidify it. And I don't think it would work because once something has an image and it's solidified, you can fight against it. Yes. Okay, I was thinking the exact same thing, right? Mm-hmm. It, right. Whereas before you kind of had a more abstract image of things, right? Or a version of things. And that's definitely depicted in the dialogue that you were mentioning earlier of, well, do we have this? Do we have that? Like, what's the point of creating all of this? What's the point of going to this place if we can't have everything that we can imagine, right? Your literal limitations are your imagination. Um, I think right, it gives tangibility to what is otherwise an abstraction and it removes 
subjectivity from the world around us, right? And mm-hmm. exactly as you're saying, it's something that you can fight against, which I think is an interesting contradiction, right? Because it's simultaneously efficient in making native populations understand what you're trying to sell, but also kind of destroys the idea of heaven. Yeah, well, it's just it. like, so the idea is always the pearly gates or whatever. If you gave them an image of gates, this, they'd be there and they'd say, why do we want to live in a land that constricts us? Mm-hmm. Their their nature-based mindset and their view of land as something that isn't sort of bought or sold would sort of very much clash with the idea of white pearly gates that let you into somewhere. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And also just, I, I've mentioned this idea a lot and I want to relate it back to the idea that you were mentioning before, right? Whereas in the in Black Robe, the uh, the Native American populations talk a lot about dreams, right? mm-hmm. and the idea that dreams indicate some form of path, right? For a lot of people, um, there's a there's a kind of a, a parallel that that runs throughout the entire story of like what's the power of dream versus what's the power of imagining heaven, and what kind of what kind of vision does each of that perspective offer? Which I think is a really interesting one, right? Because a lot of the Algonquins, for example, refer to the Jesuits as blind because they're not using their uh, what uh, they're not using the images that their senses are offering them in dreams, right? Mm-hmm. They're using things that are beyond their beyond their senses, and so beyond any reasonable kind of understanding, at least as far as the Algonquins are concerned. Um, which I think is a very interesting thing to bring up, right? This idea of dreams versus faith and where your references lie in imagining. uh, And I think there's a third dimension we can add to that. That is very important for this movie. And that's reality. Mm -hmm. Yes. The movie makes a great point when the Algonquins decide to abandon and leave behind Father LaForge and Daniel. Daniel chases after them because he's got the love interest and he wants to go chase his lady. LaForge just sort of like submits and starts living in the harsh realities of nature. He has the one, I think it's a a grouse of some kind Mm -hmm. that they give him that they hunted. And you sort of, you see him having to pluck the bird himself. He's sleeping under trees. You know, in the end, there's dreams, there's imagination, but reality is the kicker. Reality, exactly. reality is what you get when that, all that is stripped away, mm-hmm. which and is one interpretation. Or you go with the one when it was uh, Chomina dies, they honor his dying dreams. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And then there's at the very end of the movie, when they get to the Huron settlement, again, it's the imagination of where he tries to, where he baptizes the Hurons to give them salvation now that they're dying from disease. But that, that's exactly, yeah, exactly. I was just going to bring up that point. Is like at, by the end of the story, and this might be an interesting place to end off. I don't know. We'll see where this goes. But it's like by the end of the story, he keeps trying throughout the book to say, okay, well, imagine the afterlife. Imagine the greatness of God. Right? Mm. But that's not what convinces them. What convinces them to convert is the fact that very real, uh, in a very real way, their people are dying right now. Mm-hmm. Right? That's, that's, what, that's what impacts them the most. It's not the potential. It's the lived experience at this moment of saying, okay, well, at this point, what do we have to lose? We're right. dying anyway of what we now know is like various smallpox Small and the cold. Diseases that we brought. <laughs> exactly. And this idea of, you know, what there's nothing left to lose, right? It's, it's like, okay, so at best I survive. 
And okay, I had a bit of water splashed on me, but I can basically live unimpeded or I die. And if he's right, well, at least I get something good out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's one of the more interesting parts of the book, especially that it kind of alludes to this wider idea of the failure of a lot of conversions, um, both in Canada and elsewhere, right? Is that a lot of the, the, the missionaries were going about it the way Lafogue was going about it through most of the movie <laughs> and the book is that just going about it this very theologically driven way, but it exactly right. You're using these images rather than using reality, right? Mm-hmm. Representations of reality rather than lived experience, um, which prob- which might have uh, allowed for more conversion. I don't know. I don't really want to think about it because that's a horrifying thought. But well, like uh, the horror way the the film ends, you know, he converts them, but then the little text at the bottom talks about how the Huron people were killed fifteen liters late, fifteen years later. Yes. Um, for a variety of reasons, uh, they were at war with the Iroquois and the Iroquois did like do a lot of damage on, on, on that end. Uh, mm-hmm. but yes, also because of the machinations of European settlers, which actually would be intrinsically tied to what the Iroquois did also at that point. But yeah. So it's an interesting way it ends on reality. Absolutely. Um, I mean, even you can even, this is just a thought that popped into my head, but you can even talk now. (laughs) You can even talk about the way in which we were talking about martyrdom earlier, right? Of Jean Brébeuf and all that. um, And the way the Iroquois interacted with a lot of their enemies, just this idea of attaching yourself to this reality based event that happened, right? Of Jesuit priests getting uh, burned and cannibalized, you know, instigates a lot of this myth-making about attaining a higher purpose both in the colony and for the afterlife, right? So it's, again, using a very real example, not just a fictive, uh, fictitious one, as the book represents, of, you know, grounding yourself in reality in order to achieve a higher purpose, um, which I think is a very interesting um, thing that I didn't really think of as much as I thought I should have. (laughs) (laughs) There's just so much to try and piece together and pull apart. Yeah. Well, I mean, that being said, like, do you have any like final thoughts or like something that you is really itching at you? Because we've been talking about this for a while now and we can, and as you say, we can't really touch upon everything, but I think we've done a good job of touching a, a lot upon the uses of imagination and the uses of imagining the other in converting them. I yeah. think we've touched upon the major points. Is there anything that's really clawing at you to talk about? I... I, I I would I do think there is more that you could definitely talk about. Oh, for sure. The relationship, especially the little love tangent that goes on between the between Daniel and Anuka, mm-hmm. just because it seems to take up a significant portion of the film, but it doesn't actually lead anywhere in the film. So I don't know if it comes up more in the book. Uh, somewhat. Their Daniel kind of is goes left... by the wayside by the end. Yeah, their 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 ending is very ambiguous because it seems like they just sort of go off together into the woods at mm-hmm. the end. Yeah, pretty much in the book too. Which is sort of, I guess, the prophecy. It's a self fulfilling prophecy of him being colonized by the Na- the First Nations yeah. people. Like, if there's one book that we've talked about since the beginning of the show that I think people should really read more into it's this one. Oh yeah um not just because I, I think it's a genuinely interesting story like there yeah we've been talking a lot about the problems and stuff like that but i think it opens up to a lot of debate and i think it 
it's an accessible way to approach many different issues, as you've probably seen through us talking about it. Um, there are plenty of books that can do this and some that we've covered, but I think this is one of the more accessible and one of the more relevant ways that you can go about it because it's a popular depiction of something that happened centuries ago and that still has an impact today. So I think that's a really cool thing that this book does despite its issues. And I encourage listeners to either watch the movie or find a paper copy of the book or a digital copy if you're some like internet savant who can somehow find a digital copy of the book. I and think we're not internet savants. We're just slightly <laughs> kind of smart. But um, what I think is really interesting. The movie is also all available for free on YouTube. Yes, FYI. I should mention that. It's in, I don't think MGM cares enough to put a copyright strike on it. No. Um, so, and, and this will kind of open up to, I think, our final thoughts is that Moore intended this book to be something universal. Right? Do you think, first of all, do you think he succeeds in that? At his and, mission? Yeah. And uh, as something in his mission to be something universal, do you think he succeeds in that? And do you think this is the type of story that would be a universal uh book right there are universal themes mm -hmm. of culture clash discrimination racism systemic inequality and those are very important themes that are still relevant today yeah the religious themes are still really re very relevant today but i do think that this is a book that is always going to be more important and more popular to north america just because of the specific instance and impact of the relationship between First Nations people and the colonizers. Mm -hmm. In the end, this is a colonial book. And I think that sort of universal discussion and message is always going to hit harder and resonate more with North American communities. Absolutely. I'll, I'll agree with that. I'll agree with the idea that it's universal in its themes. Yeah. Maybe less universal in how it approaches them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, For sure. But I think it's certainly something worth looking into. 100%. I think it, it's more universal and important today than it was maybe 10, 20 years ago, just because of how much more we're finally starting to open the discussion. Yes. Because this is a great example to point to of doing good, but need to do much better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that being said, Mac, how can people support us? Well, let me tell you, Mac. So you can support <laughs> us by on the Facebook page, through Twitter, uh, emails, can we, we listen to the emails to try and improve our product and improve our show? Absolutely. We have a PayPal account set up where you can pay what you feel the show is worth. We have affiliate links. So if you're looking to buy the book, we will have an affiliate link posted. And if you buy through that link, we get some kickback. So some of the money goes to us. You can support us on Patreon, which is a major one where we have, again, extra episodes written, researched, produced, directed by moi about all sorts of fun Canadian pop culture topics. We just, the latest one was on the Montreal VFX scene. Before that, we talked about The weekend and his Super Bowl halftime show. Before that, it was Celine Dion, Michael Boo. We haven't done Celine Dion yet. Oh, it's coming. I, I know yet. it's coming sometime. <laughs> well, we've done Michael Bublé, Cirque du Soleil, Denis Villeneuve, yep. other things that don't sound French. And it's just a lot of fun. Finally, reviews on iTunes always help. Always great time. We always love hearing what you people have to say. You can give us one stars. You can give us two. You can give us whatever stars you think we're worth. I just like hearing from people because it Honestly, helps you yeah. become a better person. Ooh, okay. You're going to take the moral high ground on this one. <laughs> Help me become a better person. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be like Father Lefog. Change. Yeah. 
I think All it right. does change a little bit. A bit. A tiny bit. A smidge. <laughs> well, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And join us in two weeks' time because we are going to have an extremely special guest on the show. Is it Santa? Yes, it's exactly. It's Santa Claus. Um, no, but we're actually going to be trying something new on the show. It's something that I've been meaning to do oh, pretty no. much since the beginning, and I'm really excited for it. And it's going to be a bit of a continuation as to a lot of the themes that we've been talking about today. So this idea of conversion, this idea of writing within a colonized setting and imagining your place in the world within a colonized setting, except it's going to be much later. We're going to be returning back to our chronology with the writer George Copp. Way. So join us again in two weeks time for that. That being said, thank you everyone for listening and I'll see you next time on Historia Canadiana. Cheers everyone. Mm-hmm.